0: Hi, everyone. This episode of the podcast was a good discussion about fluid therapy in patients with acute kidney injury or AKI. Um, It's something that a lot of clinicians seem to struggle with when they're managing kidney patients. And we certainly get referrals uh, fairly frequently of patients where the fluid management could have been a little bit better. Uh, So I spoke with Dr. Leo Londoño, who is a veterinary criticalist that works with me here at the University of Florida. And he loves kidneys more than really anything else and more than I think maybe he should. Uh, he is the director of our hemodialysis unit and we rely very heavily on him to stay the most up-to-date on all things kidney so that he can keep the rest of us informed and continue to love the kidneys as much as he does. Hi and thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to have with me Dr. Leo Londoño to talk about fluid therapy in acute kidney injury and, um, and this is uh, one of those topics that Kind of difficult for people to wrap their brains around. It, it feels counterintuitive, so I'm actually really excited um, to get to talk about that. So, th- welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Bobby. Yeah. So, this was the topic you wanted to bring up. So, you clearly had uh, reasons for doing so. So, just start by giving me your thoughts. Why? Why is this a topic that's important to you?
1: So, I think that one of the biggest frustrations working in a referral center like UF and uh, managing a dialysis unit is. Sometimes we see uh, these cases with really bad acute kidney injury that, unfortunately, uh, the management fell a little short. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, is more focused on the part of fluid balance. Right. So, uh, and one of the issues or, uh, that we have in veterinary medicine is that we associate kidney disease with requirement for a lot of fluids. And, yeah. unfortunately, that is a mistake. Uh, yeah. And nowadays, we're seeing more in the human side as well and in the veterinary side that more fluids is not the answer. Right. So that's why I wanted to talk about yeah. this.
0: Yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the things that we see probably the biggest issues with is getting the fluid balance right. But it's also probably the most difficult part of managing an animal with kidney disease is getting the fluids. So it's, it's also super understandable why it's often wrong is because it's, it's hard, even if you're thinking a lot about it. Um, but so, I mean, really, the most common thing we tend to see as a referral center, right, is fluid overload. Right. So um, how, does, how does that happen?
1: So uh, the fluid overload is, by definition, when the animal gets more than 10% increase in their normal body weight. <laughs> um, and the way it happens is when, you know, what in human medicine desi- uh, defined as liberal fluid therapy Mm -hmm. what that means is that we don't really have goals Mm -hmm. or an idea what the exact ideal fluid balance for a patient is Mm -hmm. so you know to make it very clear for the listeners let's say you have a dog with elevated kidney values and you put it at three four times maintenance Mm -hmm. those kidney values don't decrease 24 48 hours later Mm -hmm. but we still keep them at Three, four times maintenance, ah. not keeping an eye on how much they're putting out. Right. So that's you know after the those 24, 48 hours when we start seeing an increase because that water is accumulating right. in the body. It's gotta go somewhere. Body. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if you look at some of the human literature, people can gain in ICUs up to seven kilograms of body weight mm-hmm. in a week. Because I feel like
0: I can do that after the holidays, but true,
1: right? That's <laughs> but this I is just that.
0: strictly water weight.
1: Water weight, yeah, and that's because we don't really keep a close, uh, you know, monitoring of these patients yeah. regarding how much we're putting in and how much they're putting out, um, and. I tend to disagree a little bit with you. It shouldn't be that difficult. Like, <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. a matter of numbers. It's adding yeah. and subtraction. I
0: think what happens, what I struggle with, is when those patients come in, they're often in a fluid deficit. Right? When right. they're originally seen, you have a patient that has kidney injury. They've probably been losing fluids. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they were polyuric and they probably weren't eating and drinking. So they almost all come in with some degree of dehydration and therefore a pre-renal component to their azotemia. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the numbers on the printout from their chemistry, you don't know how much of that azotemia is pre-renal and how much of it is renal. And so it's a bit of guesswork at the beginning, right, to say, okay, well, I, you do want to put them on reasonably aggressive rates of fluids initially. Um, but as you were saying that when, um, you know, their their kidney values don't drop or they stop dropping and we don't adjust our fluids accordingly, like that's that's really when the mistake happens, right, right. Is, is you have to be watching them really closely you know, it's also, I think it's a, a bit difficult and something that I struggle with, you know, with like our house officers and things on the clinics is we want them to pay attention to the body weight. But I also see them swing in the other direction where the body weight is the only number they care about. And it's like, well, they're, you know, yes, the fluids is the most critical factor, um, in what's it, you know, leading to day to day or hour to hour changes in body weight, but there are other things that go to it. So I've also seen people get so obsessed with the body weight that they forget like, well, the dog's also been in the hospital for two weeks and it's probably been catabolic during that time. And so it's also lost muscle mass. And so the target when it first came in may not be the target today. And so I, I think that's where it becomes sort of difficult is, is people want a simple solution for how to know how much fluid to give. And it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that's why it's important to talk about Um, you know, how do you know when it's time to cut back? Um, Because a lot of these patients, they can be anywhere from polyuric to, you know, maybe normal urine output or quote-unquote within the normal range to oliguric to anuric, And that's not always that obvious to tell where they are on that spectrum. So I I do think it's it's challenging. And I also think it's hard because when we're teaching students, people have an association. I think most veterinarians have an association between kidney disease, you treat with fluids. And I think that comes from the initial treatment, but you're only treating pre-renal azotemia. Right. And I, d- I don't know if we always do a good job of explaining that.
1: I think that, you know, the way I explain it sometimes is that when we treat fluids, we're treating the cardiovascular system mm-hmm. that supports the kidneys. Right. We're not treat, treating the kidneys themselves. Like right. Those fluids don't have any component in them that are actually right. treating the nephrons. Absolutely. So, so the way I see it uh, or the way I explain it is when you give fluid therapy to the kidney patient, you're treating the cardiovascular Absolutely. system to maintain the perfusion to the kidneys mm-hmm. but not treating the kidneys themselves. So this paradigm has to shift where we yeah. see fluids as a therapy for the kidneys is right. more for the cardiovascular system. Right, you're treating
0: dehydration or hypovolemia. Right, you're right. not treating... And I actually pose the, the, the statement the same way to the students. Like, how do you treat kidney disease? Fluids is not how you treat kidney disease. It's how you treat dehydration. It's how you treat hypovolemia. Right. Um, but you don't... You're not treating the kidneys or, you mm. know, uh, you can't make the kidneys somehow be better by drowning them. Exactly. <laughs>
1: and, uh, and, and you bring a really good point. The problem is when we give too much fluids, we're adding edema exactly. to the kidneys. So that further contributes to the fact that they
0: cannot excrete as much. No, and I think that's what, at least for me, I mean, uh, even before, you know, being mindful of their fluid balance, but I think in, in recent years, you know, based on research that's been done in people and rats and things like that, that how much fluid overload is actually worsening kidney disease. It's actually, not only is it not helping, it's actually probably making those kidneys even less effective. And so are we seeing worse outcomes because we're overly aggressive? And I think that's, you know, um, why it's so easy to get uh, so so worked up about. Like, no, 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 you know, we really have to be mindful. And it, but you're right. It comes down to knowing what you're treating. You're not treating kidney disease with fluids. You're treating, like you said, the cardiovascular and, side of things.
1: And, uh, and absolutely, the, uh, the kidneys can make you lose a lot more fluid, like when yeah. those patients become polyuric So, yes, you need to give more fluid sometimes, mm-hmm. but you, sometimes you have to stop the fluids. And I think that's a very difficult concept yes. for, you know, practitioners, specialists, the students to think about, okay, I'm not going to give fluids to a kidney patient, but when they're not making urine. And then
0: gasps and and everybody's like, what? Right,
1: right. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, it also becomes difficult when the owners are not willing to refer for dialysis and things like that. So it's a difficult concept. I think that, you know, if we wanted to maybe deliver a message out there is that you know, if you see that your patient is getting more than 10% of their body weight, yeah. maybe it's time to rethink about the need for fluid therapy yeah. and think about fluid overload. So I think that one th- one of the concepts uh, that we need to, you know, give to the listeners is that, they need to watch that percentage change in body weight.
0: So how do you decide then?
1: Especially um, in the first few hours. Yeah, like yeah, you say, yeah, In the first few days.
0: Yeah. So how do you decide? A patient comes in to you, you're seeing them for the first time, uh, and they have evidence of AKI. Um, so you start them on the first day, a fairly aggressive fluid, right? You know, a few times maintenance or something like that. Um, So talk about like how, what's your monitoring plan? How are you going to decide? Because let's say you've never seen this patient before. You don't know what their normal weight was before. So you're playing a bit of guesswork, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you decide this is, this is the goal weight. Uh, This is what I'm watching for. These are the tools that I'm used to monitor so that I can do the best that I can to to figure this out. What's your
1: approach? So uh, my approach is to try to define, does this patient look a little dehydrated? Or does this patient actually look hypovolemic to the point that mm-hmm. he's showing signs of shock? Mm-hmm. So when I see those patients that have lost enough fluid to the point that they have a high heart rate, high mm-hmm. lactate, all those things that indicate that uh, they're in shock, I may shoot for a 10% yep. gain, you know? Uh, 10% uh, gain in body weight based off of, of a fluid therapy. If they're just a little dehydrated, tacky mucous membranes, so it's a little objective, mm-hmm. I'm going to say should for anything between five and ten percent, you yeah. know. Yeah. And we know these these indicators of dehydration are not sensitive at right. all, not in people, not in dogs. But you need to have a plan. You got
0: something, yeah.
1: And then was my idea that you replenish that deficit as safe and as soon as possible. Yeah. What that means, uh, you know, if the kidneys are not getting enough perfusion,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I wanna. Replace that within six, eight hours. Yeah, I we want to prevent further injury to right. the kidneys. Right, yeah. we don't want to prevent that perpetuating ischemia right. to the kidneys. And, you know, if you set a goal of a percentage body weight mm-hmm. and, a, and a time, mm-hmm. then at that time you should reevaluate the patient and see have they gained that weight? Are they making urine? Because mm-hmm. if they're making urine, probably you're, you know, perfusing enough the kidneys that yeah. they're making We're doing pee. Very good. So maybe that's the time to back off.
0: Yeah. Now, just to be complete here, what's your fluid of choice in that stage for the typical patient?
1: Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Okay. Uh, so the guideline or the, from the critical care nephrology area in human medicine is avoid r- chloride-rich fluids, yeah. avoid colloids because they tend to be nephrotoxic. Yeah. So we're trying to avoid yeah. anything that the can The synthetic make, colloids, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, synthetic yeah. colloids. Anything so that no
0: normal saline. Um, no you normal want a balanced solution that's lower in chloride and uh, none of those starches, essentially. Right,
1: <laughs> basically. So uh, there is a great book on fluid therapy in the surgical patient in human huh. medicine. and it's A great really
0: surgery book? Wait a minute. I know. <laughs> it's
1: kind of funny, but uh, <laughs> at least that keeps critical is interested. Yeah. Um, and they really define like that, physiological or they call saline physiological fluid but it's it's nothing physiological yeah and um, it was based on some studies that they did on red blood cell lysis that they came up back in the you know 1800s or something like that that the um, electrolyte concentration in human blood was close to that of saline, but that was a mistake. I mean,
0: it's, it's close depending on how precise you want to be, but you know, not it's closer chloride. than seawater, um, yeah. but yeah. But the chloride content it's was a way lot too lower.
1: High. Yeah. So, um, definitely not saline, mm-hmm. definitely not synthetic colloids like header starch. Uh, ideally a balanced fluids called LRS, yeah. plasma light, uh, you know, norm, R. Yeah. And then once you replace that fluid deficit, that's where, you know, we really want to start playing with different types of fluids, maybe truly do a maintenance fluid in addition to a replacement fluid if they need an extra That's actually the
0: thing that I struggle the most with, I think, intellectually, is not so much the volume. I feel like I usually have a decent handle. Some some animals Mm -hmm. will make it harder for you than others, but um, is knowing what their losses are, right? So in the very, very polyuric patient, and we see some patients, you know, after a severe AKI where they're insanely polyuric, you yeah. know, where animals are, you know, 10, 20, 30 mils per kilo per hour, like just ridiculous amounts of fluid and, um, and not necessarily knowing what their, their salt requirements are essentially what, what their, uh, solute requirements are. And, Uh, You know, I guess I'm finding that it mostly is trial and error where you start them on something, you know, I usually want to lower the salt content of my fluids once I feel like I've rehydrated them um, because they're going to not be completely needing replacement fluids. But if I switch them, at least what I found anecdotally, if I switch them exclusively to a maintenance fluid, a low sodium maintenance fluid, a true maintenance fluid, then they often start to develop hyponatremia. Um, but I I haven't figured out any sort of plan or formula. It's just start this and then add back in some salt-containing fluids. Do you do like a half and half at that point? Like, what are you doing?
1: I I usually, what I do is I do the maintenance rate on maintenance fluids.
0: Like a normal, healthy maintenance rate. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then if they need a, in addition to Mm -hmm. that, let's say they are producing two times or three times the maintenance Mm -hmm. rate, the additional maintenance rates
0: You'll One just give two. us like a replacement
1: fluid. I give them a little, a little mm-hmm. uh, replacement fluid, especially when they're receiving enteral uh, nutrition through a feeding yeah, tube that is getting mixed with water.
0: Yeah,
1: salt that way too. Uh, because also they're getting well, a the lot of water. water. yeah, uh, that's sometimes true. Sometimes that make him a little hyponatremic. So I'm not yeah. afraid to give them, uh, you know, in addition to their maintenance fluids, uh, something with replacement.
0: But I do think it's important to cut back on the salt that you're giving them once they're replaced. Right. Because damaged kidneys aren't good at flipping. Like you take healthy kidneys and you're like, throw a bunch of salt at them. Here's a bunch of salt, have nine bags of mm-hmm. potato chips. And then you take away the potato chips. The kidneys are really good at going from us. Like w- get rid of salt, get rid of salt. And then they go, Ooh, stop getting rid of salt. We need to save salt. Cause that's the normal state of the kidney is to conserve salt. Right. But it's damaged kidneys that don't flip that switch very quickly. And so, um, you know, I remember learning that is that you had these patients that, Especially, like, I think the chronic kidney disease, not necessarily what we're talking about today, where, you know, we're giving them, they come in the hospital because they're having, like, a, a relapse or something. You put them on LRS, um, which for the replacement fluids is a little lower in salt, but it's it's a high salt-containing fluid. Yeah. You put them on that for several days. They start to feel better. Their kidney values get back to where they had been. And then you send them home, cold turkey, and you're like, oh, by the way, go on this low-salt-containing KD diet right. or some some salt deprived food. And then you expect the kidneys to handle that, like give them a bunch of salt and then immediately take it away. And then they're peeing out all this extra salt and water's going with it. And then they get dehydrated and they boomerang right back in the hospital. So I I do think it's important to think about, even if I don't know exactly what these kidneys are doing, I guess we could, we don't measure urine electrolytes very much, but maybe we could more than we do. Um, But I think it is important for people to think about once they've been replaced, we have to reduce the sodium to some degree. Yeah. I don't uh, know how important you think that is, but...
1: I, I, I do agree with you, especially if you're looking at kidneys that are recording and yeah. you know, they're, expen- they're spending a lot more energy trying to, you know, trying to maintain that balance in mm-hmm. electrolytes. So I do think it's important. Um, the other thing you mentioned, you know, can we monitor electrolytes uh, yeah. in their urine? And you can measure, the, you know, fractional excretion of mm-hmm. sodium and Uh, other electrolytes, problem is that that doesn't really reflect kidney function. It reflects more how you can adjust your fluid therapy. And I think that's one of the misconceptions we have.
0: Yeah. Um, Especially once we've already started treating them.
1: And, uh, you know, one of the things that kills me sometimes is, you know, going back to the chronic patient, it's like sometimes you you manage these cats with sodium chloride Mm -hmm. every couple of days really... Really, what are we doing for those Mm -hmm. patients? Uh, I know. That's why
0: I'm such a big proponent of the feeding tubes in the Mm -hmm. chronic. Like, even if they're eating, I don't care. Just water is so much more physiologic than giving them high salt-containing fluids, sub-Q. Especially when they
1: already have Mm
0: -hmm. a
1: lot of compromised.
0: Here, go work harder.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So uh, there is definitely concepts that need to be changed in veterinary medicine. And I think that uh, if you still read some of the books, uh, which I'm not going to,
0: Don't call them out yet. Don't call them out. We're trying to be nice here. But uh, (laughs) You can tell us the good ones.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, uh, let's say that if you read some of the old books, they still say the fluid of choice for the renal patient is saline, and that really hurts my kidneys. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's been essentially disproven. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, for sure. Okay, last thing that I think is really important to talk about. So you have a patient, and... You weren't monitoring them close enough, and they have become fluid overloaded. Or you inherit it. You you would have done, you would have never done this, but your colleague in the clinic overloaded the patient. Right? It was the neighbor's dog, whatever. Um, so somebody else has overloaded this patient. How do you, you know? What's your recommendation for dealing with that? For the, for regular people who don't have dialysis immediately. Available? Yeah.
1: So the first thing is uh, recognize that at any point you're concerned about fluid overload, most likely that patient is fluid overloaded. Yeah. yeah uh, good point. So whether it's a percent change in body weight, mm-hmm. where you start noticing peripheral edema. Uh, sometimes, you know, one of the earliest signs of fluid overload is chemosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing you need to do is stop fluid. Stop fluid. the
0: fluid. Yeah. I know it's the hardest thing for people to exactly, do, but exactly, like, exactly. you mean all the way? A lot of people want to just turn them down. You're like, no, they're overloaded. Right. They're overloaded.
1: So <laughs> stop as, I, as I said before, it's that paradigm shift in, mm-hmm. you know, not all renal patients need fluids, mm-hmm. you know? So they need to stop fluids. And that's when you uh, either have the option to see if they're able to eliminate that fluid on them, mm-hmm. you know, by themselves. And that's where we have to look at urine output. Mm-hmm. And to measure urine output, you don't always have to have a urinary catheter. Right. Like if you have a technician that can walk the dog and yeah. the dog is able to walk, <laughs> there you, go. you can, you know, collect the urine. In cats, sometimes we measure their pee pads mm-hmm. or just see production, you know, yeah. evidence of making urine. Maybe you can let that patient go for a few hours and see if they reduce that excessive body weight uh, by themselves. The other option is that's when Lasix and diuretics do have an application in renal disease, uh, not not using them when the patient first comes in. That's a mistake. Because if they have a fluid deficit and you're giving them diuretics, it's like... Doing euthanasia and (laughs) doing CPR at the same time, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if (laughs) you do fluids and diuretics. Right. Um, So if you notice that there is a fluid overloaded patient, the first step is stop fluids and then you have to make a decision. And this is based on the patient, Mm -hmm. whether you give them a few hours and see if they start making pee or they need a little push with diuretics. Yeah. Now, there is one concept out there that talks about the diuretic Resistance or not resistance, but you may need to use a higher dose on a patient that is aneuric mm-hmm. or severely oliguric. Why? Because the Lasix has to get has to get there to the yeah. uh, ascending loop of Henley. Mm-hmm. So, if the patient has been documented to be aneuric, maybe that one to two mg per kick dose of Lasix isn't going to do much. Right. So that's where you need to increase those doses or do a high dose yeah. at the beginning to see if they respond. All
0: right. Last thing I want to ask you—that's uh, maybe I don't. Maybe it's not as controversial as it once was. But the last time I looked, and you're guaranteed more up to date on this literature than than I am. But in human patients who are not volume overloaded, giving a diuretic like furosemide or mannitol are associated with worse outcomes. At least that's that's what it. Several years ago, that's what the the mm-hmm. kind of consensus was. And so, if they're fluid overloaded, absolutely give them a diuretic. Right. If they're not fluid overloaded you shouldn't give them a diuretic based on human information. Now, extrapolating so on and so forth. I don't know. I feel like in veterinary medicine, we extrapolate from human medicine when it's convenient and we ignore it when it's convenient. But um, what, is, what is your take on that? Or is there something more recent that, that you can share with me? Uh,
1: so, two answers. Yeah. Uh, first, uh, uh, I want to talk about the extrapolation. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> okay. Dr. Polzin uh, published a really nice paper in 2013 uh, talking about the retinal kidney model mm-hmm. and how all human nephrology today is practiced based on dog studies.
0: What? That's weird. Yeah. Dog studies from when?
1: uh uh-huh. Wow. 1980s or something like that. Oh, I remember then. Yeah. So, um, so you know, there are many statements where they say the basics of sure. modern human nephrology is based on the dog studies. The foundation of dog
0: studies. That's cool. So.
1: So why not extrapolate it? Sure, that's my first question. Cool. Because we don't have the ability to do all the research. Sure, thinking. sure, sure. So sure. Uh, now, uh, regarding the use of diuretics, yes, um, I think that the evidence is scattered. Whether mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily all evidence points are they have a worse prognosis, but it doesn't make a difference in outcome or in renal function because yeah. that's that's what people think. That Giving diuretics improves renal function, and it doesn't. No. It does increase level of oxygenation to the kidneys when you're removing the edema sure. from around them. Right, because so you're that's what I'm saying. Perfusion. If they're
0: edematous, if they're overloaded, yeah. I, I'm all for Yes, give them diuretics to get rid of that fluid and the edema first. But it's the ones that aren't overloaded. Now, you could make an argument that can you really know if there's, uh, you know, organ edema in all of these patients? Okay, no. But, like, even theoretically, if you're like, I have no reason to believe this patient is fluid overloaded, and I'm just worried that they're oliguric or aneuric, and I want to give them a diuretic to see see what happens. Like, diagnostically, I want to see if this, like, there's no evidence to my knowledge that that shows whether or not they're going to get there better either. So, um, you know, if if there's pretty clear evidence that it's not going to make things better and maybe can, at least in some studies could make things worse, yeah. my thought is don't do it. Just stop the fluids, give them time. Um, right. You know, if they're if they're otherwise okay, um, you know, I think that's a hard thing too. It's like just leaving an animal in in a, in a cage in the hospital without fluids, without giving treatments. Like it's really hard for us to not and actively do stuff.
1: And <laughs> I think this is something I learned from you actually. Yeah, cool. That, uh, <laughs> you know, is that difficult decision of not doing of
0: not doing something
1: something and the problem is that we you know with we still don't see recovery in the patient mm-hmm. we don't see improvement so we think that pulling more drugs is i have to
0: do more yeah, things so yeah
1: so i think that's that's probably it's something hard. that uh is very difficult to overcome when you're yeah. a young clinician especially yeah. uh you know uh like I paid a lot
0: of money for this prescription pad. Like <laughs> a <laughs> young doctor
1: treats a patient with many drugs. Yeah. An older doctor treats many conditions with, with one, one drug, drug, yeah. 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 So, so it's, it's no,
0: I think it is one of the hardest things um to, to do is um is to do nothing, right? Is mm. I, I I often think like a lot of times our patients are getting better in spite of us rather than because of us, right? Like it's, you know, they just need some time and a little bit of support. Let's first do no harm. That's the other thing I try: first do no harm. And sometimes doing something has the potential to cause more harm than good. And, um, and that, whether that's giving fluids, giving medication, like it's kind of the same thing that's coming up over and over, right? Patient is sick. I want to give fluids. I want to give medications. And sometimes the best thing you can do for your patient is just, is nothing is just look at them and give them some support and time.
1: If you can bet on something, it's early nutrition. Like oh, yeah. That's a good one. That's that's,
0: yeah. If they get them food. If
1: you can just put a feeding tube, give them water and food.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's been working when you weren't there, right? They were what? doing just great, you know, right. for seven years before eating Maybe and drinking. Maybe some
1: antibiotics. And <laughs> yeah.
0: Nah, be careful there. <laughs> 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 we're going to have to have a whole other discussion about that. He didn't mean that. That was a joke. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Okay, that's the next thing we're going (laughs) to talk about then, Lyle. Antibiotics. (laughs) Uh, Good deal. Well, um, thank you so much for coming. I think this has been um, a really, really good talk, and I hope people will um, at least stop and think a little bit more um, about how they're managing some of their acute kidney injury patients and that while fluids can be life-saving in some circumstances, they can certainly be too much of a good thing too. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. Um, I look forward to having you back.
1: Sounds good. Thank you, Bobby.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. I'd like to thank my producer, Topher. Follow us on social media. We are on Twitter or Instagram at Vet Journal Club. All episodes are available at veterinaryjournalclub.fireside.fm. You can email us with questions, comments, or show ideas at veterinaryjournalclub@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And check back weekly for new episodes, and we'll catch you next time.